issues that we're having is that the the systems were put in place to do surveillance. They weren't they weren't originally designed. Some of these, some of them now are, but they weren't originally designed to facilitate compliance, statistical counting. These kind of issues. Well, for God's sakes, that's um, right. That they're intelligence agencies. Right. They're not. They're not compliance agencies. And this is part of the problem: is that we've devoted so much intellectual energy and um, creativity and software and hardware to building redundant compliance systems to reassure people that uh, uh, we're unable to collect the intelligence and analyze the intelligence in the way that we should. But I think that's that's I, I guess I disagree with you there, Stu. And among, yeah, the, sure among our areas of disagreement, <laughs> this is one of them. I do think the compliance uh, part of it is extremely important. I mean, I think I think if we're given an authority and told you can only use it in a certain way, we have to be able to show that we're only using it in that way. Yeah, and, and it's should, hard we, I, because I the technical you, systems I, are complicated. Of course, when when the law uh, says you do it this yeah. way, you, you do it this way. Right. That's that's uh, uh, the deal that the intelligence com- community has with the American people. Episode 283 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're going to be expressing views not shared by our institutions, our clients, uh, our friends, or our families, uh, or frankly, even our pets. Uh, today, I'm going to interview Alex Joel, uh, former chief of the uh, Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy, and Transparency at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and who has left that position to become scholar-in-residence and adjunct professor at the American University at Washington College of Law, where he's helping to lead the tech law and security program. God, I, I did not think, Alex, that you could possibly find a longer title than the one that you had at the DNI, but you did it. I think number of words denotes importance, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, exactly. Inversely. Um, okay. And joining us for the news roundup, uh, Gus Hurwitz, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska. Gus, great to have you. It's been a few weeks since I've been on. Great to be back. Okay, and Dave Hytel, who's the CEO of Immunity Inc. and the Chief Security Technical Officer at Sixterra Technologies. Dave, good to have you. Good to see you again as well. And Dave Padere, who uh, is a um, uh, new to the uh, uh, podcast. He's an associate uh, in Steptoe's New York office doing a lot of cybersecurity and privacy work. Uh, uh, Dan, uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, let's start with some law. Uh, Gus, uh, there's uh, a decision about the scope of Section 230 uh, from the Ninth Circuit that I think is right. What's troubling is that it uh, there were actually two judges, one uh, the district court judge and one member of the panel who thought the case should go the other way. And I find that really hard to believe. What's what's the story on this case? So this is uh, an enigma of a case. That's a joke. It's an enigma <laughs> of email where bites uh, that uh, it's interesting for a, a number of reasons, uh, not least of which is that it's a Section 230 case, as you say, Stuart, but Unlike most of the uh, newsworthy, high-profile Section 230 cases, this isn't about um, are platforms uh, uh, supposed to be treated as publishers? Uh, do platforms get to police the content on their websites? Uh, most of those are Section 230C1 cases, which uh, Section 230C1 basically says uh, 
interactive computer services platforms aren't publishers, um, so they uh, don't need to remove content. But Section C2 says that they are free to remove content if they so desire and do so in good faith. And uh, part of Section uh, C2 also says that companies that develop software or systems to enable platforms to moderate their content um, are free to develop those systems. Um, and this case involves one of those systems, um, uh, Malwarebytes, and most uh, 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 cybersecurity, uh, anti-malware, um, antivirus programs can fall under a Section 230C2. And the question in this case, uh, or the, the allegation in this case, is that Malwarebytes uh, software effectively identified Enigma's software as malware. Um, and the question is whether or not uh, that's anti-competitive, whether or not Malwarebytes was designing their software to harm a competitor. Um, and if so, does that fall within the ambit of Section uh, uh, 230 C2? And C2, C2 if, I, if I remember right, basically was designed to say if you want to filter content. You can't be sued for filtering content or for making tools for filtering content. Uh, um, as long as the content you're um, filtering is sexual or violent or otherwise objectionable. And the, the argument here seems to be that, uh, well, they're a competitor. Of course, it's objectionable. We're going to filter it out. And we don't want our customers to ever see this website because uh, the prices are better or something. Uh, yeah, so the, the case focuses on the otherwise objectionable uh, content um, and uh, how, how broadly that is to be defined. Um, there's a, a, a 2009 Ninth Circuit case, which is, should say this was a, a Ninth Circuit uh, uh, case, um, uh, Zenga v. Kaspersky, which arguably was on point um, and said that uh, these sort of design decisions fall within the scope of uh, C2. Um, but there was a, a dissenting opinion there uh, that said, uh, well, you know, if this is an anti-competitive practice, perhaps it doesn't fall within the scope of C2. Um, the arguments uh, that we see here are the same ones that we see uh, in most Section 230 cases. If we open up the door to potential liability, we're going to open up the door to all sorts of litigation. Um, every case involving uh, these systems is going to turn into an antitrust case, and those are complex, uh, very difficult, very expensive pieces of litigation. Um, on the uh, other side, uh, we also have uh, the traditional criminal law exemption, federal criminal law exception uh, to uh, Section 230. There is federal antitrust law. So uh, in principle, the Department of Justice could investigate malware bites if uh, Enigma were to go to them with uh, evidence of a criminal antitrust violation. But but we're in a we're in a world where the big social media platforms have enormous power to say no you can't say that I uh, uh, and if they're allowed to say well we can say anything we like it's objectionable for Republicans to speak on Facebook uh, um, actually Twitter because uh, Twitter actually believes that. Um, a, a, they, and they can't be sued for discrimination on viewpoint. They, can't, they could say certain ethnic groups can't speak uh, uh, because we find their speech objectionable. Um, that, it 
it cannot be that we are in a world where these platforms that have such enormous power also have an immunity for exercising that power in arbitrary ways. Well, that's uh, what the law says. Um, and uh, that this takes us beyond the Malwarebytes uh, discussion. But uh, we'll be seeing later in our discussion today, I think, Stuart, some of uh, how the platforms compete with each other on these uh, speech principles and speech priorities. Um, and the uh, argument, the thumb on the scale that we've uh, uh, put down is uh, we don't want the law, the government to be uh, the arbiter of, well, was Facebook wrong to exclude these viewpoints? Was Twitter wrong to view, to exclude those viewpoints? Well, arbiter, hell, they, we, we, we gave them this super immunity. Maybe the government should say, you know, take your chances with the lawsuits. Uh, you're, a, you're a big boy. Put on your big boy pants and go to court. Yeah, so we're, uh, we might get into this with um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, comments uh, at Georgetown um, uh, this past week uh, when we talk about those. Um, one of the things that he said there is one Facebook's <coughs> focus is, and I should say not defending Facebook here, um, but uh, one of uh, uh, Facebook's focuses has been uh, uh, screening uh, who gets onto the platform, making sure that the speakers are real people. Um, instead of focusing on what they say. And I, I'm, uh, I've argued, uh, for instance, uh, in this context of Section 230, uh, there should be an attenuation to Section 230's immunity uh, uh, that allows platforms to opt into strong immunity, provided that they're able to unmask the identity of speakers so that harmful speakers can be uh, sued uh, in court by injured parties for defamation or other uh, uh, cognizable harms. Um, we uh, uh, don't want to be, I believe, in a position where the government is the arbiter of what these platforms can say, but I think there needs to be some arbiter other than uh, the platforms themselves. Yeah, there are plenty of things you can do short of telling um, Twitter that they have to let Republicans speak. Uh, uh, you could you could say, I'd like to see your rules. I'd like everybody to see your rules. I'd like to see how you apply those rules. I'd like to see the algorithms you use. I'd like people to be able to demand uh, uh, to know whether they've been uh, shadow banned or not. Uh, there's a lot you could do short of uh, uh, telling them how to uh, um, uh, decide who speaks and who doesn't. Uh, uh, but all of that means tinkering with Section 230. And um, uh, the problem that I, as I see it, is that Section 230 is about to be, unless somebody in Congress gets very aggressive very soon, it's about to become binding international law in the United States, despite the fact that uh, both the ranking Republican and the ranking uh, Democrat, uh, the chairman in the House who uh, uh, spoke to this issue most recently said, that's crazy. You shouldn't be writing this stuff into law. And the USDR response seemed to be, uh, hey, we, we write the deals, you don't. Yeah, and we saw uh, this uh, similar, uh, we've seen lots of discussion similarly with um, uh, intellectual property uh, regulations uh, being written into international trade deals. Uh, and it's fascinating, uh, regardless your view on either 230 or uh, uh, IP issues, um, uh, the use of trade deals as a way to export American uh, uh, tech policy 
um, and uh, uh, related laws. That's not even American tech policy. It's the tech policy that the biggest, the, the, the companies, the tech companies with the biggest lobbying shops want. Uh, uh, that's the that's what they're offering USTR is lobbying assistance in getting the deals through uh, and the price that they expect uh, the USTR to pay is to write the legislation that they want whether or not Congress is willing to adopt it on its own. Um, uh, I won't call it sordid and corrupt, but uh, uh, it is uh, an illustration of the general rule that uh, the scandals in Washington are not what's illegal and uh, happening. It's how much is legal. And this is perfectly legal, but it's it's a real decline in the value of free trade deals, in my view, uh, into lobbying packages for uh, powerful U.S. uh, uh, industries. The question, Stuart, is uh, do you prefer that we put these into international trade deals and weaken the federal government? Or do you prefer that states like California start exporting and imposing their values onto the federal government, which is a nice transition to the CCPA? Yes. Okay. So, Dan, uh, uh, the CCPA is, in fact, uh, more or less de facto going to be national privacy legislation. Uh, um, And the regs came out. We noted that, uh, I think, last week, uh, uh, but just gave it a lick and a promise that, well, they spent an awful lot of time trying to fix the holes created by this feel-good provision on uh, uh, giving people access to their data and a right to delete it. Uh, what else can you tell us about the uh, the new regs that uh, folks who actually have to live with them should pay attention to? Sure. Well, I mean, as as, as someone that has you know been advising businesses on the CCPA for um, you know relatively you know long time since since the C, since the CCPA was was released, um, you know we we've been waiting for this for these regulations for a long time, especially since you know it's going to be the Attorney General that enforces the CCPA. Um, you know, there's a, a limited private right of action, but the Attorney General is really the the big player here. And, you know, for businesses, um, you know, this is, I think, a a very mixed bag. Um, You know, one of the big questions coming out of the CCPA was, you know, how to verify a consumer request. Um, you know, because that's 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 a main component in terms of you know right uh, right to know requests, deletion requests. A business has to to verify a consumer request, and the CCPA was you know absolutely or, or mostly silent on what that entailed in terms of verifying a request. Um, and so, one of the positives I think from the regulations is you know there is a clear framework um, now. In terms of how a business should verify a consumer request, how a, ver- how a consumer should verify a consumer request for a right to know with respect to categories of personal information, as opposed to a, a heightened standard for you know right to deletion um, under certain circumstances, depending on you know the information that's being deleted. Uh, that seems to me, you know, I, I have to say, Dan, that seems to me the thing that they um, they clearly understood they had to. Address yeah, uh, in writing right. the regs, uh, partly because uh, this other. If, if you don't address that, this so-called privacy bill becomes an anti-privacy bill and an anti-security bill. And they did, you know, they. Uh, I think they left plenty of room for people to exercise discretion, but I don't think people are going to be issuing um, or sending out data where they have real doubts about uh, the identity of the person requesting it. What else have they did they do in the regs? 
Sure. So, I mean, another positive component is, you know, businesses have to, at the point of collection, um, when they're collecting personal information, they have to provide um, disclosures in terms of what information they're collecting and how the information is going to be used. And they have to do a similar, um, you know, make a similar disclosure when they're offering a financial incentive. And what the regs did is they're saying, is, is the regs now say, um, you know, under certain circumstances, you can just provide a link to your privacy policy to make those disclosures. So, you know, as, as, as someone that's been advising businesses, um, you know, making those disclosures at the point of collection or opt-in to a financial incentive, you know, that, that, w- that could have been pretty burdensome. So I think that that's another positive component of, um, you know, of, of the regs. But, you know, there are certain uh, additional obligations and, and add-ons that the regs also, um, you know, have, have included, which, you know, we can go into as well. So one of the things that I keep hearing from people is that uh, it's going to be a real problem for loyalty programs mm-hmm. that uh, – uh, uh, stores offer um, where you get a big discount uh, or sometimes a big discount and sometimes, uh, you know, some penny ante discount, but you get a discount um, if you use the card that allows them to keep track of your purchases. Uh, um, How do the regs or how does the law affect those programs? Well, I think that that's one of the most interesting components of the regs. And, you know, in in my view, I think that the, the CCPA provides a framework to continue uh, you know, to, to continue offering loyalty programs, but it just it, it just has uh, you know a bunch of different hoops that businesses now have to go through uh, when they're offering those programs. And one of the things that the regulations say is when you're getting opt-in for a loyalty program or any sort of financial incentive, a business has to justify that uh, that that financial incentive under the CCPA. And it essentially tells the business that you need to actually calculate the value of, of the consumer's data to you as a business. And it, and it, and it tries to provide a framework for that calculation. Um, but it, it says that, that that justification has to go in the, uh, in, in the, in the disclosure. And I think that, that that is something that's new in the regulations. And that's something that businesses are going to look at and say, geez, how do we you know, how, how do we do that? Because I assume that implicit in that is that if people say, no, you can't keep track of my purchases, but I still want the discounts, uh, the company could say, well, your discounts are worth uh, $20 a year to us. So the first $20 you're not going to get. But after that, they kind of have to give them the money, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very tricky. And, you know, it, it's going to take, you know, it, it, it's, this is something that's going to have to be addressed in the next six months before the CCPA, the CCPA becomes enforced. So you think there'll be more regs written uh, after they receive their comments? Um, I, I think it's, it's unclear, but I think that the attorney general is going to have to provide you know additional clarification, um, and, and the, the attorney general will certainly have to you know address and respond to comments on the regulations. You know whether those become part of the regulations themselves, um, I, I don't I don't know, but there'll have to be some additional clarification because. You know the the the, red, the regs really do provide a, a, a pretty substantial gloss over the over the um, you know the existing CCPA. All right, thanks, Dan. Uh, uh, so, Dave, I I want to. Uh, uh, 
talk about these startling number of stories, most of them over the weekend, which I have, I have to say I resent as somebody who does his planning for the show on Friday, um, uh, about hacking stories. Uh, uh, Reuters had a story, this was a little earlier, saying that the U.S. had actually retaliated in cyberspace against Iran for its drone attacks on Saudi oil fields or oil refineries. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've read that story three times and it's exclusive and it's a big deal. Um, but it says almost nothing about what uh, uh, the, uh, Cyber Command did. Uh, as they all do, as they all yeah, do. Yeah, I guess that's right. I, 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 I mean, I'm not his biggest fan, but Iran's Minister of Communications, uh, Zari Javroni, said, well, they, uh, Cyber Command must have dreamt it because... Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, I have to say they're getting they're getting better at uh, at Twitter. Um, uh, any idea what this means, uh, or are we just going to have to keep guessing? I mean, I think there's there's legal requirements that when you're running a military cyber operation that you attribute it to yourself. So that's <laughs> yes. One thing that you're seeing sometimes when Cybercom does operations is they have to, one way or the other, say, hey, this is the United States. So, you know, actually, maybe there's a, there's a, there's room for clandestine, which means that you do it in secret, but you don't mind having it attributed later, which may be what's going on here. I, yeah, I think so. Th I think there's a lawyer involved somewhere, which and that <laughs> lawyer has said, give some details, but give the absolute minimum of useful information. And so then you get these articles, we did something, we won't say what, but it was us. So that's what you see. And then the Iranians are free to deny whatever they want to make themselves look good internationally or domestically, which is probably more likely. So yeah. I think that's what we're seeing here. And it's so little useful information, but it will be blown up by a million policy papers into so much over the next, who knows, how many years. So that, that's what this is. So there's another story which I suspect has something to do with Iran uh, that isn't uh, overhyped. Uh, uh, it looks as though Turla, which is one of the more sophisticated uh, uh, cyber attack entities, uh, uh, has been uh, – Take has actually taken over the entire in, uh, attack infrastructure of some other nation state, maybe Iran. Uh, 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 Dave, you you're closer to the um, nicknames that everybody gives these guys, but is it the Russians taking over a uh, an Iranian uh, uh, attack framework and then acting as though they're Iranians? It totally is, and I think there's a lot more to this story that's even more like just fascinating. It's it's Turla, which is, has a million different names and a million different groups, but Turla's a, an amazing A-team operation. I mean, like any Russian group, they're scrappy. Uh, think like what the Israelis are when they're at their best is Turla. And what, they've done things like satellite work that just blows me away. So from as a pure – looking at a peer group, you're like, that's awesome. Go team. But uh, what they did here was they hacked into the actual – infrastructure of oil rig, which is one of the many Iranian groups, and use that infrastructure to hack other things and install their own uh, command and control and, and Trojans and that sort of thing and gather the intelligence. And so this means the best part about it is now it's like an NSA and GCHQ joint you know, discussion on it. But the original NCSC GCHQ reporting on it was that it was Iranians doing it. Or no, it, that it was they originally said it was 
it was Iranians, I believe. And so well, the, the reality is the attribution is confused at the nation state level. And it comes down to an ongoing discussion in the cyber norms community about what does it mean to do attribution. The, the lawyers will tell you and the international you know, relations students will tell you that it's going to essentially be a solved problem. And the technical people inevitably tell you this problem's not getting solved anytime soon and it's a complete disaster and we all need to step back from any kind of you know, bizarre cyber norm that you're responsible for your own space because no one knows what's happening even on the space they most carefully control. I mean, it's an amazing story and in some ways it's hard not to respect the efforts of Turla Group and it's also important to note that every other group is probably doing the same thing. Like, this is not just the Russians. Didn't the Iranians have all the, a lot of their tools doxed uh, uh, back in uh, uh, the spring? Is that related to this, do you think? I don't think that's related to this. Uh, they got doxed in a very weird way, extremely fishy, um, random things coming out on uh, Telegram channels. I don't know that it's related to this. I mean, I don't know that it's not related to this either. Maybe the Russians decide to blow them all the whole operation, but it doesn't seem like a Russian thing. I would say that's probably more a al allied uh, effort to yep. deter the Iranians. So it uh, sounds like they they, they kind of suck at uh, uh, defense, at least, uh, uh, though they uh, uh, they have a pretty aggressive offense. Uh, speaking of sucking at defense, uh, Avast has been compromised again, although this time I guess they're saying um, the compromise didn't accomplish what the last compromise did, which was to actually send out uh, a sea cleaner uh, with uh, uh, malware inside, uh, a real supply chain attack. Uh, is that? Am I reading the story right? I mean, the thing is you can read their spin of it. And the spin is hilarious because what happened was the attacker got domain admin but then got caught by the Microsoft advanced threat analytics tool that Avast uses internally, which I, I think is ironic. But if I told you, and, and many people have, that you have to assume that everyone is compromised, but then you add and that the people who've compromised you have domain admin, almost every CISO would would vomit up their skull because right. this this level of access where they were trying to replicate a you know domain controller which you can do with I think you know maybe cats and a few other tools but that level of access is as much access as any attacker could ever want I don't know that you are ever going to kick them out because imagine not just cleaning off one like computer but your entire network now has to be rebuilt and yeah they didn't get CC cleaner but we're not they're saying it's a copycat attack, but how do we know it's not the same group that got CC cleaner or C cleaner before, right? So how do we know that they haven't been there the whole time? And so this is one of those bigger questions of how much do you trust the endpoint controls that you've purchased as any company? So I've purchased Avast or Kaspersky or CrowdStrike or FireEye or any of these other tools, and I've installed them. But now those companies have to defend themselves against nation-state attackers, and we don't know that they can. And they have such deep roots typically into the uh, uh, into your system that once they're compromised, you're not likely to come back from that. You're not likely to even discover it. And this is why Kaspersky, of course, is going through its legal troubles trying to sell to the U.S. government, which I would say it's 
destined to lose. But you know, this it's a very interesting report. Their spin is as good as any spin could be. They did a good job, but yeah, the the reality is is the level of access those attackers had should scare anybody. Speaking of being scared. Equifax, I hate to pick on them because they've just been beaten up so badly, but um, the plaintiff's lawsuit against uh, Equifax has resulted in a uh, just devastating uh, judicial opinion talking about uh, um, how bad Equifax's security was. Uh, uh, Gus, um, it really does sound pretty devastating. Uh, my one question was whether um, all of the bad things that are attributed to Equifax's security practices had anything to do with the actual compromise that they suffered. Yeah, that that's unclear at this point. Um, but uh, boy, oh boy, does it look bad. Uh, uh, quick word of advice for any listeners. If your uh, default username and passwords for uh, business systems are admin and admin, uh, change them because that's yeah. what Equifax is doing. And uh, I- I'm just thinking, uh, as I still largely focus FTC land, even though FTC issues uh, arguably have improved a bit with their cybersecurity approach. But uh, admin, admin for uh, uh, business critical systems, that's uh, or external facing systems, that's just a, a, a bad recipe. Dave, can you defend Equifax? Well, even I can. I can. And here's how I say it. I will say that it's not that the emperor has no clothes. It's that none of us have any clothes and we're maybe at best wearing thin bikinis as we march into what appears to be a sword fight. So like, I agree that admin, admin, very bad. But I've also worked in penetration testing for 20 years. We continue to work with some of the biggest companies in the world. And I will say that you will always inevitably find things that in hindsight are ridiculous. And it's a rare company that gets, you know, especially an internal report, but even externally, um, at this size, uh, any kind of real glowing review. So everything externally looks like you're always going to say this was, you know, an incorrigible horror and you should have seen this coming. You didn't have login or logging where you needed it. Your authentication was always bad. I don't think Equifax is too different from its peer group. Let's put it that way. Yeah, what, what I'd uh, add to that, uh, I, I'm very sympathetic and uh, usually am the, the lawyer arguing, hey, we need to be more understanding of the actual process behind these things. Uh, the uh, question in uh, the case uh, or a case like this is, what process did Equifax have behind uh, uh, their security? Did, were they doing audits? Were they working to identify this? Had they identified it and failed to address it? Uh, security is process, not state. Yeah, my, my guess is this, this, this reads a little as though it was cherry-picked from some audit that uh, Equifax had done because uh, 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 you can always find problems. Uh, I used to I used to be a uh, do a lot of winter mountaineering and uh, uh, ski ascents and things like that. And uh, there is a journal of mountaineering that writes reports on every mountaineering death, at least that occurs in the White Mountains and probably in the United States. And the burden of every single report 
is these people died because they made mistakes. Uh, if you don't make mistakes, then you don't die, almost exactly. by definition. Uh, and so I, uh, there is, you know, it really is. It's sort of sad to, to, to read these critiques of people who are dead and who are better mountaineers than I. Um, uh, but you can always find errors when there's a problem. And often, if you go back and look for other things that didn't cause a problem, you can find uh, defaults that were left open because somebody got called away in the middle of uh, a, a, uh, uh, enabling the uh, the program. Um, so I, I, I do read this with a certain jaundiced eye, but still, it was, um, uh, it was deeply embarrassing, and uh, the hits just keep coming for Equifax. So, Stuart, um, I, I can't resist, uh, since you bring up mountaineering, I'm a rock climber, and the same thing's true. Uh, uh, every accident when rock climbing, there are uh, ex-post reports, and people do write-ups on them, and it almost always comes down to simple mistakes about the simple stuff. And yeah. in security, we focus on the big stuff. Uh, there was uh, a story in the news this past week. CNN uh, had one of their reporters uh, uh, have a hacker try to compromise uh, uh, her systems. And uh, it came down to social engineering. They were able to find her name and some information from uh, social media, get her phone number, use that to social engineer uh, their way into uh, some of her other accounts. It's always the simple stuff, the people who make mistakes. Uh, we focus on the big, fancy technical, but uh, 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 getting process, getting uh, training, getting people thinking security, that's always the most important and hardest step. Okay, so there's two reports that I thought were worth talking about, Dave, uh, that, that kind of tie to this. Uh, one is a... Uh, Crowdstrike report uh, uh, with one of the better titles. It was all about a 10-year campaign to steal turbine technology from uh, the United States and Europe called Huge Fan of Your Work. Uh, and the other was a discussion on uh, uh, by FireEye on APT-41's espionage, uh, indicating that APT-41 is a remarkably Russian-style Chinese cyber attack uh, entity in that they seem to be combining profit-motivated hacks with government-motivated hacks. And I, didn't, I haven't seen that much coming out of China. I, I wouldn't say that they're Russian. I would say that's also a Chinese-style um with their the way they have uh, sort of diffuse command and control over their over their contractors, but just to bring you back to the CrowdStrike report, to be completely honest, it wasn't just about the turbines. So they're called Turbine Panda by CrowdStrike, but it was a team of top Chinese spies, which includes human intelligence and the cyber what we would call signals intelligence or cyber operations. And what they did is an, a massive effort to look at all of the different parts of a system that go into the C919 uh, aircraft and build them domestically instead of having to buy parts, uh, which of course, as we know, can get entity listed uh, from foreign uh, providers. So it's things that are as, as simple as the flight recorder or um, gate signals and, and or like fire detection uh, systems within the plane, or even the tires, or the fuel system, all of these pieces 
are sourced to make this airplane. And if you can replace them, then you can make that airplane domestically in China, which sees it as a strategic. It's one of their top 10 strategic areas that they want to be able to do completely domestically, which I think they now can. So it's an amazing – you always get this weird pushback. I get this pushback from Halvar Flake all the time. He's like, I don't even know what the big deal is with the intellectual property theft that China's doing. You know, This is not a big deal. And if you look at it strategically, this is this is the kind of paper that can show you what a big deal this is. I, and- I agree with you. This, this is because, yes, it's one thing to say, you, you know, just stealing some files might not get you all the way. But these guys could go back to the well time and again with people who understood the technology. Sometimes we're working inside the companies and say – we're running into a roadblock on this particular problem. How is our competitor solving it? Uh, I, and they could steal stuff that got them over one hurdle after another. Yes. And it, it's amazing to watch happen. And you see papers like this. I've seen papers like this for the last 20 years. And I don't know how we're not pushing back even harder against this sort of thing. I mean, if it was up to me, this is what export control would be used for entirely. Instead of so there used there there is a rumor uh, that I remember hearing that uh, IBM had uh, a problem with people stealing its intellectual property years and years ago. Uh, it uh, might not have been China, might have been uh, some Japanese company, uh, and their practice was instead of kicking up a giant fuss, they would gather the evidence, they would go see the company that had benefited from the stolen IP and say, uh, we see you're licensing our technology, but you haven't paid yet. Uh, so here's our royalty for people who steal our uh, intellectual property and use it. Uh, that may be the only remedy that's likely to work here, right, is to force a, a payment of very stiff royalties for, for stolen IP. But sure, it looks as though they've got evidence that would justify that. And it's also interesting to see how much we know about the people who are involved in all of these operations. Yeah, we got their names. I didn't Everything. see any girlfriends' blogs this time. But but this tells you like how much is our sort of law enforcement deterrent really working? You know, like this has been one of the few things that we can do is sort of we will indict you if you get caught doing this thing. And I just don't know that that's an effective mechanism the way the FBI thinks it's an effective mechanism. No, not now, now that there's a, uh, there's a Disney World in uh, uh, China, they don't have to come here anymore. I guess, I guess not. But, I mean, that also brings us to the second story that you wanted to talk about, which is, of course, the APT41 FireEye report. Yep. An- another fantastic report. And to be honest, I don't necessarily agree with everything FireEye discusses in it, but just to give you a background – they, they called the report Double Dragon, APT-41, a dual espionage and cybercrime operation. So um, when you look at the problem with any of these names is, of course, people call APT-41 many things. Barium, the ESET team, another really good uh, antivirus team, calls them WinNTI. And it's a pretty top-level team. And you can tell by the kinds of technologies they use. So boot kits, they steal digital certificates, they do a lot of supply chain compromises, they they hit video game production environments. And one of the funny things about that is that while video games have virtual currency, which these this team has been laundering and trying to, to use to make money, they've also used 
ransomware on video game companies that, for whatever reason, the virtual currency wasn't worth enough. Uh, and most video game companies are owned by the Chinese. As if, if you remember the giant splash that was up, I think two weeks ago, from Blizzard bending the knee to oh, China, yeah. right? Like so. But that's every video game company that you've ever heard of is at least owned a bit by the Chinese, but but often wholly owned by the Chinese, which I think is a fascinating thing. And the take here, realistically, is that, yes, owning video game companies is good for money, but it's also really good for nation-state espionage. There's a reason the Chinese have invested in it so heavily, which is that every single human plays these games, and the video games come with their own rootkit. So when you install League of Legends, you're getting the League of Legends rootkit to prevent cheating. And when you install Overwatch, you get the Overwatch rootkit to prevent cheating. So they have deep, deep access, the same way an antivirus would. They're a very good target. And I don't know necessarily that the only reason they're getting targeted by APT41 is for the chump change they can get from random virtual currencies. So I think that might be an angle that explains a lot of their motivations that is not just we're trying to make a little bit of money because it's not like these guys are poor. They're highly skilled. They're getting what they need from the Chinese government. So there's a lot here. The reality is APT41 is the team that did the sea cleaner attack originally on Avast, so it might tie to our earlier story. Um, they're, they're not a team that it looks like anyone's going to stop. Indictments don't seem to work on them. We've indicted them twice already, so I don't know what that's all about. It's very interesting to see that they follow like high-ranking Chinese officials and hit hotels that they're about to stay in to do reconnaissance, which is how you do anti-human intelligence efforts too, because I want to know who else is trying to stay in this hotel who doesn't look like they belong there. They've targeted Hong Kong. They look like they've hit the team viewer thing, which is amazing, amazing attack. So there's really good teams. There's not necessarily complete control over those teams necessarily by the Chinese government. We don't know. Uh, there's a lot here we don't know because you can't tell that from here. Uh, so but- there's there, the personalities matter here. You know, this is a, this is still a field where re- being really talented to, makes a difference uh, uh, at the nation state level. Um, one of the possibilities that's worth thinking about is whether we can make these guys unemployable uh, by sanctioning individuals uh, and then sanctioning the companies that uh, hire them uh, so that they really don't have a, um, a career path outside of government. Uh, and I look forward means- to when the Chinese do the same thing to our people. Well, that's true. I, 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 yes, they could, they could be looking for you. Actually. You can't even work for the NBA without bending the knee to the Chinese. So I don't understand why we think this is something we will only have access to if we start that down as the norm. Okay, fair enough. And last story, because I want to uh, move on to uh, our interview. Uh, uh, in the least surprising move uh, uh, by a government in the last 12 months, uh, the UK government has decided it's not going to require everybody to get a, uh, a, a special ID to watch porn online. Uh, um, a, and they've dropped or at least postponed again and maybe terminally their proposal to uh, to do that. Uh, uh Dave, Gus, uh, you want to put a, uh, a spike in this one? I was going to say not touching this one with a, a 10-foot pole, uh, but... 
I see. Now I was gonna I was gonna tell it. I, I was gonna say something about uh, Britain's letting go when they called pry their cold dead fingers, and I said no. I'm just not gonna go there. Well, I mean, the whole idea is crazy. It's a crazy idea. I mean, anyone with a 13 year old knows implementing this kind of issue, you know, blockade against your local systems is a helpless, futile operation. It's literally all it's going to do is enhance VPN use. It's a bad idea. I'm amazed they dropped it, though, because it's the exact kind of bad idea that they seem to love. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. And I'll also say, um, had this actually gone through, the treasure trove of uh, uh, compromise data here would be incredible. Um, you compromise these systems, you yes. get everyone's verified IDs, and you can say, yes, this person gave us these IDs for the purpose of pornography. Uh, the, the blackmail writes, writes itself. Oh, my God. And, but everything that you do in signals intelligence immediately goes dark, right? So you will no longer have access to any kind of ability to monitor any traffic going through your networks because everyone will have a VPN immediately. And that's always the trade-off. So that takes us back to intelligence uh, and uh, uh, to our interview with Alex Joel. So Alex, um, you've been present at the DNI more or less from the beginning. uh, And uh, you've seen a lot of different people run the office. I, I, I will confess I'm kind of a connoisseur of government startups because uh, I've done a lot of them. I started to help start the education department before there even was a department uh, working for the secretary and I started up uh, – the DHS was still a startup and we did a startup at the policy office yes, within it. Yes, uh, I remember that, you and Paul. Uh, yes, and, and I remember uh, – Going to a meeting, it was something about the uh, uh, commercializing GPS, which is a long time ago. Um, and the meeting was at this building, uh, government building. I walk in. There's nobody there. Uh, and I start – I realize I don't know what room this meeting is supposed to be in. It's a giant interagency meeting with 20 different agencies. And I'm just wandering around the building kind of wondering where, where to go. And I – bump into this other guy. And I, I, I said, I'm looking for this meeting. He says, so am I. I have no idea where it is. And we wander around together. And I say, uh, you know, I'm from DHS. We just got started. And he said, oh, I'm from DNI. And, and I realized at the time that it was because we were both brand new. And the one thing the neither of the agencies had was somebody who'd been there for 15 years who knew it was their job to make sure that if there was a change in where the meeting was going to be, <laughs> that their principal found out about it before he started wandering around the building. I, and this is just one little vignette into how hard it is to get government agencies started. But let me invite you to tell at least one story of the difficulty of getting a DNI off the ground. Yeah. So I was there um, since June 2005. Um, and Ambassador Negroponte, the first director of national intelligence, was sworn in in April 2005. So just a couple of months before that, I was detailed over from CIA to the Office of General Counsel. And right away, they designated me the interim civil liberties protection officer while we all looked for the permanent one and ended up deciding that that, that permanent one should be me. That was in December of 2005. And I guess one of the things that DNI 
created was a lot of consternation among the various intelligence community elements about authorities. And so one thing I Oh, did, yeah, because he said, hey, I'm in charge of you guys. I, I remember that. Uh, he had an enormous fight with the uh, uh, CIA, didn't he? Um, it was more oh, no, Blair. Blair. Blair, who I had. Yes, yes. yes. That's right. <laughs> uh, that, so, that did so not Neg go well for Blair. No. Negroponte was very diplomatic as, you know, because he had been in the diplomatic service now, for I so long. I always thought he really would rather be at state as and that, yes. deputy secretary even exactly. rather than as uh, a secretary because he came out of state and so he valued their contribution to the world more than this intelligence office. I don't know about valuing it more, but he well, definitely- he valued it when he was 27. He definitely aspired. So he did leave DNI and became deputy secretary of state. So he, um, and, and Michael Hayden was our first principal deputy. So it was uh, uh, Negroponte and Hayden. And uh, so that was really a great combination because Negroponte was very familiar with the world and the role of intelligence. And had Hayden at that point done both CIA and uh, uh, NSA or had he just done NSA? Just NSA. Okay. So he'd come over uh, having been director of NSA. He came over and was our principal deputy, the first one. And, and um, so just to complete the anecdote about the early days of DNI, one of the things that struck me was whenever we did have one of these big interagency meetings, the lawyers would come prepared with their authorities and trying to uh, uh, explain what the boundaries were uh, that we could not cross from other intelligence community elements and the departments that they were in. And oh, so my that, own that, that, that's copy- That's the, the least attractive aspect of government. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. you can't, you're not the boss of me. Right. And there's a lot of that. I mean, and some of it's, some of it's legitimate concern about, you know, uh, risks to their activities, a concern about um, another entity coming in and telling them what to do. I mean, one of the startup f features of ODNI was that we grew out of an original staff from CIA, CIA's uh, Office of Community Management. And um, a lot of the leaders from DNI were from CIA or for, from the military or from State Department, given Negroponte's background. And so when you're in a startup, sometimes you do what you're used to doing, except right. that now you're in a different position. And now when you're doing what you're used to doing, it's encroaching on the freedom of the agency that you're supposed to be coordinating you know, and leading. So I think we had some lessons learned there in terms of finding so where let me, our let me sweet translate spot was. that. The yeah. CIA was saying, hey, we set up the DCI so that we could regulate other intelligence agencies, <laughs> not so we could regulate us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, CIA, you know, of course, felt like they were the central intelligence agency for a reason. And they had, you know, the, 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 they were the locus of a lot of the coordination that was going on in the community at the time. So those were fun days. And then, of course, we had some, we had some exciting uh, civil liberties and privacy issues that came about in those early days as well, you know, notably the terrorist surveillance program. I mean, I, I remember it was uh, a year after I had gotten there, I was actually interviewing Tim Edgar from the ACLU uh, to, become, to come over as one of my deputies. And he, Which uh, he ultimately did. Yes, he ultimately did. And on the day of the interview, the news story broke around the terrorist surveillance program, and it was the first I had heard of it. And because it was so tightly compartmented that I had not been read into the compartment, so I didn't even know it existed. And so we were both trading, you know, asking questions of the other about this new new terrorist surveillance program thing that had just been announced. So that was a great great way to introduce uh, somebody from the ACLU into into our office. So. My sense is that uh, one place where the DNI 
proved valuable to the intelligence community was in those some of those fights, uh, uh, both the fight over the uh, terrorist surveillance program uh, and then later over the Snowden leaks, partly because it could speak for the intelligence community as a whole without having to be defensive about having participated in the actual things that people were dis declaring as abuses. Uh, so it had distance and authority uh, and some pretty good uh, uh, general counsels. Uh, and so took on that role, which of course nobody was really enthusiastic going up and being you know, beaten about the head and shoulders by Congress is never fun. Uh, and the DNI stepped up to that. Yeah, they uh, he really did. So with the terror surveillance program as it, as it moved into becoming uh, covered by the Protect America Act, if you recall, in 2007, yep. and then that became the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. Um, Mike McConnell really did a fantastic job of being the public face for that and arguing about how uh, the world had changed, the way that telecommunications flows had changed, and so we needed to come up with an amendment to FISA that modernized it. It helped that he had been head of NSA, so he yeah. knew the drill and he knew how the technology worked and why this would be very important. Absolutely, yes. And uh, and, and I think he had a lot of credibility. And then Ben Powell, you mentioned general counsel. Ben Powell did a fantastic job yeah. uh, working and on that. And Bob Litt later. I, I think the, those they're both very talented people. Right. So with the Snowden disclosures, it was under Clapper. Um, uh, he was the DNI and Bob Litt was the general counsel. And um, that was a huge crisis for uh, the intelligence community, as we all remember. Um, a big crisis of confidence. I think we all felt surprised at the degree of uh, intense reaction across the board. I mean, I remember my friends and family members uh, consuming those original, those early stories from the Post and asking me why it was that NSA was spying on their phone conversations yeah. and listening to everyone's phone conversations. And I was trying to explain how the call detail records were not your content of communications, how the use of the program was very narrow, even though the, the, the collection scope was very broad. But I think we were all taken aback by how quickly the conversation turned on the intelligence community with, that, with those revelations. And so that really sparked... Well, a couple things came out of that. One was our big push on transparency, which I'm very proud of, and I know you have some questions about. Um, and another was the reaction from the Europeans and other foreign partners, uh, which ultimately led, you know, you know, a series of events ended up with our uh, presidential policy directive 28, covering. Um, yeah, this is the infamous PPD twenty eight, my 28. view, uh, that says, uh, "Yeah, everybody in the world has privacy rights, and you know we won't uh, we, we we won't investigate their sexual preferences uh, uh, and a variety of other uh, things." Which always struck me as kind of weird. If it's if it's useful intelligence, you should investigate uh, anything that would give you an edge in dealing with a foreign adversary. Uh, uh, I've started to see just recently suggestions that maybe PPVD 28 ought to be reconsidered at least to say we're not going to we're not going to give this to countries that don't have reciprocity reciprocal rights for Americans. Uh, uh, I'm surprised it has lasted this long in the uh, Trump era. Um, uh, am I wrong to be critical of PPD 28? I know you've been there a long time. <laughs> yes, I think you are, but I think it's valid to be concerned about it. I mean, those are very valid criticisms, and and when we put when we put PPD 28 in place. Um, there was concern among the intelligence agencies as to whether or not we were unduly restricting ourselves in ways that would not be reciprocated by other countries. But, you know, if you look at Europe, they do on paper have protections for everyone's privacy regardless of nationality. The question really there is, 
to what extent, you know, is there public transparency and accountability about what is actually happening now, on the ground? The, the, in the, the, the intelligence agencies don't care what the data protection authorities say or do. Uh, they just ignore them. Uh, and so there is no actual transparency into the actual practices of their intelligence agents. Well, the UK has been very transparent more recently, and I think you're, you are seeing, you are starting well, to see enough, more Fair enough, but we already have reciprocity with them. We're, you are starting to see more transparency across the board in some countries in Europe. So it's a very it's a very complicated picture in Europe. So yes, you're correct. The data protection authorities typically don't have much to say about how intelligence is done in Europe. And that's one of our big frustrations uh, in the whole discussion with the EU on Privacy Shield has been that the uh, standards they're applying to Americans are by definition different from what they can apply within their own countries because EU member states do not cede authority to the EU over national security. Yeah, this is displacement behavior. They can't beat up their own people, so they, 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 they pick on us. So they have their own intelli- very robust intelligence oversight mechanisms in different countries. They're different from each other, uh, but they have certain common features. And so um, lately, what I think has been a really positive development has been that there's been more engagement among intelligence oversight folks. Not So not so much the EU data protection side, which we've already been talking to quite a bit, um, uh, so, but but what I've seen more and more of is the willingness and and, and actual interest in talking to each other among people engaged in, t- in intelligence oversight. Yeah, just as our oversight system is totally melting down, uh, <laughs> we we think oh, we're making great progress selling it to the rest of the world. I mean, for for. Thirty years, it, it it worked in a bipartisan way with some shared understandings about what was inbounds and what was out. Well, I don't see that now. So we have a well. Obviously, we st- we do have some intelligence oversight, very important mechanisms that are not in Congress, which I think is what you're referring to. So we have the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And then within the executive branch, you know, the PCLOB is within the executive branch, but we have other offices like the one that I used to have, Civil Liberties and Privacy Offices, the Office of General Counsel, Inspectors General. Yeah, I used to say very like, strong when I was General Counsel at NSA, yeah. I used to say there are at least four officials whose careers would be made if they could catch uh, the agency <laughs> violating uh, uh, people's privacy. Now it's probably 20. So there are right. a lot of people who, who are, you know, who would like nothing better uh, right. than to find a real privacy or civil liberties problem. Uh, and they would become heroes, at least for the New York Times. And that that's good enough for at least half of America. So uh, there, there's no doubt there are a lot of institutional protections, maybe more than we should have, because at some point you start to wonder whether we aren't spending all our time protecting civil liberties as opposed to gathering intelligence. So I don't think we've gotten to that point. I, th- I do think we have a robust framework that isn't as well understood as it could be, and so we're de- we are working on that. One of the issues is complexity. I mean, it is really complicated. I'm teaching national security law right now as part of my new duties, and it is you know it is challenging to to piece it all together in a way that is coherent and that makes sense. Um, and in some ways, I view it as I, I look at the complexity and I ask, you know, is this complexity without purpose? Is it just confusing? Or is it complexity that provides capability, that without the complexity, if you oversimplify, you're not going to get um, the capability that you want because you're going to default to a more restrictive common denominator or a more permissive one, which could result in, in, in other problems. So I do so, think it's it's 
complicated. I, I, I agree with you. And the complexity is, causes confusion. One of the questions that I think it's fair to ask is that there was recently uh, several FISA court and FISA court of review decisions on 702 saying that uh, the FBI's methods for protecting U.S. persons from searches uh, uh, under the latest uh, uh, FISA uh, uh, reforms were inadequate. I read that as um, a little problematic because, uh, well, first, it was a big surprise that the FBI was doing like 3.1 million U.S. or searches of the 702 database. That's got to be way beyond what anybody else does, which suggests a culture in which they just run names uh, whenever they encounter them, uh, and they wanted this database to be part of the, uh, the review. But it means you can't have a little form you fill out every time you do a search because you know, that's 3.1 million forms every year. Um, but the court thought, oh, yeah, a form, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and then said about the fact that some of these searches weren't really very easy to justify as national security uh, uh, searches, that uh, uh, the failure to prevent those meant that there was a violation of the reasonableness requirement under the Fourth Amendment, which strikes me as sort of using a howitzer to uh, to go after a fly. The Fourth Amendment isn't ordinarily thought of as that fine-tuned about exactly what disciplinary methods you ought to have in place uh, to prevent arguable or potential abuses. So that was my take. You have a more informed view of the decision. So tell me where I'm wrong. So I think both of those comments focus on one part of the decision that was looking at the compliance incidents. Uh, and then there's another part, which is the one that actually the FISC R ruled on, which was on the record-keeping requirement. So there was a record-keeping requirement that came out on the FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act when the FISA Amendments Act, Section 702, was reauthorized by Congress. And in that, they required that each agency maintain a record of each U.S. person query. Right. And so FBI had been had not been doing that. They had been maintaining a record of all their queries. And right. So they say, well, the U.S. persons are in there somewhere. In there. So their position was that the U.S. person queries were a subset and did not and, have to and, be Understandably, if, if or, you just run names when you encounter them, you don't know whether they're U.S. persons. You can guess, uh, uh, but you're guessing. Correct. Uh, and um, the idea that they should stop their investigation and do this little mini any sub-investigation to determine whether this person is a U.S. person uh, 3.1 million times a year is a substantial burden on the ordinary practices of the FBI. So that was the argument um, that the FBI made and the, the FISC at the lower court level basically said those are interesting arguments. We're not persuaded wholly by them. But in any event, the statute is clear. And when the text of the statute is clear that that controls and you're supposed to maintain a record of each U.S. person query, not an undifferentiated record of all queries that has to be then figured out later. And, the, and the, one reason for that, other than the text of the statute, was is to facilitate oversight. If our interest is in looking at the U.S. person queries to determine whether they were appropriately run, it's very difficult to do that if you don't have them tagged like that. So that well, was... But if you, if you have a particular U.S. person that you're afraid has been the subject of improper investigative attention, you'd look up their name on the list of 3.1 million. I, it's not that hard to 
check for abuses. Right. They... So, so one of the FBI's arguments was uh, the reason there's 3.1 million is because it is the practice of FBI to query their databases and, and to federate those databases. So that's been a lesson that they learned from 9-11 yep. and yep. from the major Hassan shootings and et cetera. They, they were constantly criticized for not sharing and from not knowing what they actually each other, each office knew. And so they put in place a federated query system. So the, it, the court basically found that the um, opinion of the, the – the, it was interesting, the role of the amicus in this case because the court – Who was the amicus? It was uh, Amy Jeffress and there were a couple of others who's uh, – uh, Cedarbaum and then they added a third. Um, and they found a, a lot of the arguments that the amicus made very persuasive and the court – both at the trial court level and at the FISCAR, basically told FBI this is more in response to their concern about the compliance incidents and, and the Fourth Amendment, is why don't you put in place a system where if once you get a hit in the 702 data, which are pretty rare for the 3.1 right. million, you're, not, you're typically you not going to get any hits. Yeah. And the other thing to think about is that the FBI only gets about 4% of the 702 collection from NSA to query to begin with. So it's a narrower um, uh, group of... Of, of data that they're querying against. So the court basically said, well, one way to solve this was to adopt- Wait, wait until you get the hit and then and do the- then do the, the, do the justification for why it is yep. that you want to see the content. And so FBI submitted amended procedures that does exactly that. And so that's going to be the way they address the concern around the compliance incidents and the Fourth Amendment. I do think that it's fair for the court to focus on the Fourth Amendment because it's a reasonableness requirement. And and what they're doing is uh, – I don't – I'm sorry. But, you know, I don't think the founding fathers, when they put reasonableness in there, were thinking about whether, you know, uh, paragraph 12B2A of uh, uh, the minimization procedures might go a little too far. Uh, that, that strikes me as judges – Pulling out the only trump card they have and playing it, you know, too often. So, the just remember also the courts are responding. Part of part of the argument is that each individual query should be a separate search under the Fourth Amendment, and each query should get its own warrant. And so the that argument was made again by the amica the amici here, and the court rejected that. Right. And instead of that, said there's a reasonableness requirement. And the reason, of course, that they're even wrestling with this issue is that when you're targeting a foreign person overseas who's in communication with an American, you're gathering that American's communication as well. And so your ability to then focus on particular Americans and snatch, snatch their communications out of this soup of data and focus on an American without having gone through a you know, a probable cause finding is what is being, you know, creating a concern. And and if I think the advocates would say that if, in fact, 702 is sweeping up, you know, ginormous volumes of data such that by picking out U.S. person communications from the soup, you're in essence obviating the need to get a warrant to, oh, but to that's target so, that so person. That is, that's so paranoid and bogus. Uh, I used to have prosecutors come out they would just have discovered, you know, NSA has all this capability and their eyes would get wide and they'd think, oh, there's all this great stuff. You've got to let us in there. Let us, you know, wander barefoot through the lakes of data that you've collected. Uh, I, and then they would, they would get it if, if they were really good and insistent and had a political uh, uh, fair wind behind them. Uh, and they'd come out and start going through it. And after about a week, they just their eyes would glaze over. They realized that you know, this stuff was gathered for intelligence purposes if it's 
got relevant evidence for a, a criminal matter, that's a complete accident. Uh, and so the likelihood that you're going to get useful information to attack somebody or abuse their civil liberties uh, from a random collection of data that was focused on getting somebody else's communications for some other purpose is close to zero. I think – I don't know if it's close to zero, but it is very small. I agree. The, the, in fact, what the FISA Amendments Act put in place was a requirement that the um, that they do have to go to the FISA court and get a warrant if they want to use a hit that they receive on a pure evidence of a crime unrelated to national yep. security query. And there have been – I think we only reported that there was one such hit so far – because this came out of a court order um, a couple of years ago. So let me let me offer another concern that has occurred to me as we talk. Um, there have been two sort of uh, flaps in the five-year renewals of these programs. Uh, 215 was amended to say, no, you can't collect all this stuff and put it in one data lake. Uh, this is the metadata of communications in the United States. You leave it with the phone companies and then subpoena them to do searches in their own records. Uh, uh, and that was purely based on a principle that the government shouldn't hold it, not a sense that the government couldn't be trusted to hold it, although there were people who, who thought that. Uh, and of course, that produced all massive numbers of violations and overcollections and mistakes of all sorts. So um, in saving the program, Congress and the people who drafted that law created so many compliance traps that the program is essentially dead right now. Um, now it turns out 702 has exactly the same problem. In an effort to save 702 from the crazies who wanted to have uh, a, a warrant for every search, uh, they came up with this kind of clapped together uh, uh, set of rules thinking it could be enforced. And now it turns out that it's a giant compliance trap for the FBI. So it's it's almost like a self-licking ice cream cone where every time there's a scandal, you put in place a, a piece of legislation which people don't understand well enough to comply with and which thereby creates the next scandal. <laughs> so that's quite that's quite uh, an indictment. Um, so on the 215... And I have to say, a little bit of an indictment on the DNI's uh, uh, legislative drafting. Oh, okay. Now we're going into it. No. Um, so on the 215 program, the you're correct that under USA Freedom, they, um, they terminated the ability to collect the records in bulk. Now, President Obama had already announced at that point that he was looking for a different way of doing it. So he, if you recall, he made a speech in 2014 where he said, look, we're going to we're going to get a court approval before we can query these call detail records going forward for each query. And we're going to, you know, there used to be three hop queries. Now they're only going to be two hop queries. And then he assigned a team to figure out, is there an alternative to the government holding the data? Because there is more of a risk that the government could abuse their authorities if they have the data than if it's in third-party hands. Now query what restrictions are on third-party use of their own data, which you have been talking about quite a bit in this podcast. Um, and then the USA Freedom Act came around and basically said you have to uh, take a seed number with a court approval and send it to the phone companies and they have to then give you back two hops, not not more than two hops. And I, don't, I wouldn't say there's been a massive amount of compliance problems, but there have been 
Well, enough, enough data integrity. Just, the NSA just said, you know, we're going to throw away all our data and right. we're not going to take any more. That right. sounds like massive. Well, it's massive in terms of the impact on the data, yes. But it was, you know, technical irregularities in the data that they were unable to resolve, you know, because it's phone records from these companies. Yeah. They're, they're responding as best as they can. And there were just problems with the data. And so, yes, Problems they did. that were perfectly they, predictable when people said, oh, why don't we leave it with the companies? Because it was never going to be easier. Uh, but it was right. uh, a bowing to the ideologues who believed that if the government held it, it was, uh, it was evil. And if you left it with the companies, it wasn't. Uh, but I think this, this certainly suggests that next time we renew one of these statutes, and we'll have to do it by the end of this year, um, we shouldn't be too quick to accept the legislative drafting that comes off the Hill because they don't really know how the programs work in many cases. Uh, and I fear um, the intelligence com community is too quick to want to deal and their engineers are probably too confident that they know how to make these compliance systems work. It is very complicated, and it does it does point out the the importance of thinking through what you're actually what is this actually going to look like? If you look at this legislative language, can we all before before everybody votes on it and blesses it, can we all agree on what it says, and can we have a conversation or a series of conversations with our engineers to make sure that they can do it? Part of the issues that we're having is that the the systems were put in place to do surveillance. They weren't they weren't originally designed. Some of these, some of them now are, but they weren't originally designed to facilitate compliance, statistical counting, these kind of issues. Well, for God's sakes, um, that's right. That they're intelligence agencies. Right. They're not they're not compliance agencies. And this is part of the problem is that we've devoted so much intellectual energy and um, creativity and software and hardware to building redundant compliance systems to reassure people that uh, uh, we're unable to collect the intelligence and analyze the intelligence in the way that we should. But I think that's – that's. I, I guess I disagree with you there, Stu. And among yeah, among, sure among our areas of disagreement, <laughs> this is one of them. I do think the compliance uh, part of it is extremely important. I mean I think – I think if we're given an authority and told you can only use it in a certain way, we have to be able to show that we're only using it in that way. Yeah, and, and it's should, hard I, because I the technical you. systems I, are complicated. Of course. When, when the law uh, says you do it this yeah. way, you, you do it this way. Right. That's that's uh, the deal that the intelligence com community has with the American people. But you, you need to start saying to Congress enough – with the mandates. We can't just keep taking mandates and taking mandates and taking mandates and then designing our systems to do more and more compliance and less and less intelligence collection. Uh, that's that's my concern. Okay, so like promise that uh, I would ask you about your new job at American University and the uh, Transparency Project. Uh, uh, what is it uh, and why should our listeners uh, be interested? So I'm helping uh, Jen Daskal, whom you know, stand mm -hmm. up a new program there called Tech Law Security, and it's going to look at the intersection of technology, law, and security at the all the new issues similar to the ones that we've been talking about, different areas of interest there. Uh, we're going to be trying to gather small groups to to have conversations and come up with you know practical policy solutions to present, as well as serve you know to help educate our own student body. Um, the, I'm, I'm doing a couple projects. One of them is on um, transparency and trust. And there I'm really focusing on meaningful transparency and um, how can organizations provide information 
to the public in ways that actually move the needle on trust. And so part of that discussion is going to focus on what organizations are doing, both in the private sector and in government. You spoke a little bit about that when uh, earlier in the in the. Oh, second. yeah. The Facebook and yeah. Google, they should be hiring you. you, know, you know, <laughs> raise your hourly rate and start talking to them. Right. It's so like a, how should they, how, how transparent should they be or could they be about what are the and rules how much that they're following and the algorithms they're using? Which is the problem the intelligence community often has right. and which I'm sure Google and uh, Facebook have. They said there's a big cost to, to being transparent. Right. Uh, people abuse the rules once they know what rules we're following. Right. Uh, and, and so... And it doesn't seem to actually do us any good because we put out these the, – the, we, we describe what we're doing right. and it just creates another story hook for people who hate us. Yes. Yeah, so, so that is always a problem. I call that in part the cookie monster problem, which is you can't – you're never going to satisfy the cookie monster. It's always going to want more cookies. So like you know, you provide a bit of transparency. They're going to use that, leverage it to get more, yep. to get more in the government. It's freedom of information, act requests, et cetera. Um, which is fine. I mean, I, I as a proponent of transparency, that's just something that you have to plan for and expect. Um, I do find, yeah, so I'm really interested in also looking at the psychological side of it. Um, wh- what does the psychological research say about what makes a person trust either an organization or a person or, or a piece of information? We're seeing that play out in society all the time right now. And, we're, you know, the companies are struggling with it as well. Like, to what extent can you trust that this information is accurate? Was it deliberately planted? Was it uh, you know, is it falsified? Is it is it a foreign government that's trying to influence things here? And I think we all have our own preconceptions about what causes somebody to trust something. And in the intelligence business, for example, we know well confirmation bias. So mm-hmm. you're much more likely to believe something if it confirms your existing worldview. And obviously that plays a role. But I think it's an, I think it would be helpful to examine all this stuff from the perspective of meaning, making the transparency efforts that we do undertake meaningful, given how hard they are to do for okay, any Okay, I think that's a, that's a, very interesting and uh, hard and, you know, uh, God bless you for trying. What's yeah. your other project? So the other one is, uh, again, something that you'd be interested in, I think. It's focusing on the intersection of privacy and technology around the world, primarily focusing on Five Eyes countries and European Union and EU member states, looking at how the commercial privacy regimes intersect with national security oversight and seeing, you know, to what extent are they set up to cope with rapid technological change? The fact that companies are the ones who have all the data and have, are, are creating more and more data collection opportunities, in essence, by providing people with apps and devices. You know, we're not surveilling people as much as companies are. You carry, you know, people, NSA isn't putting surveillance devices on people. People are voluntarily purchasing and using devices, as you know, that that surveil them uh, pretty much all the time. And so the question really is, how do different countries deal with these common issues and, and, and challenges? I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but I'm going to look at a high-level what, to what extent are, are common uh, challenges and ideas of privacy um, animating what's going on in these different countries around the world, both in the private sector world, I mean, commercial privacy world and the national security privacy world? Oh, that's, uh, that, that is also fascinating. There, there's no doubt that uh, Europe has been exporting a model that says, uh, uh, you know, everything that is not permitted, expressly permitted is prohibited. 
Uh, and in the U.S., it has always been an assumption that uh, there's a large gray area in which companies could decide to keep data or not keep data. Right. And if they kept the data, that it was available to the government with a subpoena. Uh, now they are required to get rid of it by you know privacy law, which means that if the government wants to have it, it has to order the companies to keep it. So there's a loss of freedom and discretion on the part of the companies in that. And you start uh, saying, well, I order you to destroy it, except when I order you to keep it. Right. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that's the best solution, but that's clearly the uh, slope down which we are rolling right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the the the, the, the interesting thing for me in, in that whole discussion is just is just having having it explicitly considered, given that if um, legislatures are so slow to act and often get the technology wrong, and by the time they act, they're focusing on something that happened a few years ago, that by default, we're, we're ceding this whole space to companies in many ways, right? Oh, so yeah, companies sure. are, are making policy, and sometimes they like that position, and some, sometimes they don't like that position. They don't like to be out there They're not even going to tell you if they don't um, – if they, if, they, if, they, if they think there's an opportunity that they aren't going to like, that government would like, they're just not going to tell the government that that's a possibility. Yeah. Right? So uh, uh, I, I think social media, which came along after the big technical – uh, posse rode in to help the government after 9-11. Um, and by the time social media came along, we were in a post-Iraq war funk. Uh, and they didn't come riding in and saying, hey, this is this cool stuff we can do to fight terrorism. Uh, we have no idea what we could do to fight terrorism if we had access to some of the data that uh, on a routine basis or some of the heuristics that uh, could be used on social media data uh, because they're just not going to talk to us about it. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because in some cases people have suggested to us like in terms of the issue of counting the number of incidentally collected U.S. personal communications that we go to the companies because they know – They've done their own analysis of all the data and all the communications metadata that they have, and they're able – they would be able to identify for the government which ones are U.S. persons versus not because part of the problem is we don't know, as you were pointing out in a different context earlier. Um, and for, for us in the government, it's been no, 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 no. We're not going to touch that. I mean we are going to limit ourselves to the information we have lawfully have already collected that's in our possession and that makes it very difficult for us to figure out the nationality of somebody because we're not enriching all of this data with – with and analyzing it in the way that these companies are right, I uh, I think that probably is the right answer because <laughs> the alternative is is going to agents uh, to uh, companies that don't necessarily like uh, the intelligence community and saying, how would you like to release data that would really embarrass us uh, <laughs> and in the most embarrassing possible way because we won't get to tell you uh, how to analyze it. Uh, yeah, my guess is that uh, uh, that doesn't look good to anybody. Okay, um, any speeches coming up? Uh, events that uh, our listeners ought to pay attention to? So, the, the you know, like I said, the program is one that we're very excited about. We'll be launching uh, formally in the next few months. I believe in January is what we're targeting at the moment. So just keep looking for that. Um, and we're very excited. Gary Korn is with us, who is the general, former general counsel from uh, Cyber Command. So I think you'll be talking as yeah, well. Yeah, practically everybody uh, that I civilly disagree <laughs> with is, is over there. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Glad you could concentrate them all into one place. <laughs> Uh, Alex Joel, thank you very much uh, uh, for, for a terrific and engaging interview.
interview to Gus Hurwitz, Dave Itell, and Dan Poder for joining us on the News Roundup. This has been episode 283 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us suggestions uh, for other uh, speakers uh, uh, at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow at Stuart Baker on Twitter, and at least half the time I will send out uh, suggestions for stories that we're thinking about doing. Rate the show. We need some ratings. Come on, guys. Uh, um, uh, we got practically all five stars, but we haven't had uh, more than one in the last uh, uh, month or so. So would appreciate your leaving a rating. Uh, coming up, we're going to have Andy Greenberg from Wired, who has a no- new book out on Russian hacking of the Ukrainian grid and what it tells us about the uh, world that we are entering. Uh, and Brad Smith, who will talk to us. Uh, he's the uh, president of Microsoft. He's got a new book out in which he tells us how to solve those problems. Uh, He's mostly wrong, so we'll have uh, a great conversation uh, uh, about uh, his proposal for a new Geneva Convention on cyber war. Uh, So please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and